The first question, so we're going to go ahead and get started. The first question is, how does the dispensation of grace exempt Christians from the law according to some other Christians? Yeah, um, well, first of all, grace has always been available. As soon as man sinned, Jesus was man's savior. So when people talk about the dispensation of grace, I think generally a lot of evangelicals talk about that because they think that the Old Testament is the dispensation of law. And now they think we're in the dispensation of grace. And that's the way they get around, around the law. But really, grace has been around. God's law has been around since the beginning. And grace has been around ever since man sinned. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for grace, Adam would have died immediately. And so it says in Genesis that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So I don't know um, exactly how to answer that except that way. Romans is very clear that law and grace go together. Uh, Romans 6, 14 and 15 talks about law, but then it says, what then shall we continue to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. So when you put the law and the gospel together, and you see them together all throughout history as well, biblically they're together, then it all fits together. Okay, next question. Next question is, how would you um, address the issue of those who have rejected or minimized the writings of Ellen White? And ha have you encountered it, and how would you address it? Sure. Um, I mean, ever since Ellen White's ministry began, people, some have always um, rejected it, and some have accepted it. And so she's just as controversial today as she's always been. Um, all I can just tell you is, like I said, my story. I mean, I read The Desire of Ages totally green. I didn't know anything. I didn't know who she was. I was just completely in the world. Somebody handed me the book. The pastor handed me the book. I read the book. And when I was done, my life was changed. And so I know what the Holy Spirit did through that book for me. And nobody can take that away from me. And you just can't, I just can't deny it. And now it's, um, research has shown that there is a percentage of that book that she grabbed from other sources. To me, that doesn't bother me. She grabbed it from the, you know, the right, she put it together in a way that the Holy Spirit orchestrated and it's still, God used it to change my life and to point me to Jesus. When I was done with that book, I didn't, I wasn't pointing to her, I was pointing to Christ. And I understand the purpose of the spirit of prophecy is to point us to Jesus and the Bible. And I believe in her writings, but I believe in the book as my final authority. And when I write for the world, uh, all these little books that I've written here that I was sharing with you, these different topics on the millennium, on death, on hell, on witchcraft, on the Sabbath, on the mark of the beast, spiritualism, uh, there's not a quote from the spirit of prophecy in these books. These are just Bible books because I'm sharing them with the public. I also give out Desire of Ages, too. We, we uh, sell Desire of Ages on our website uh, to people in the world, and along with the great controversy. Uh, we encourage people to read those books, but those books point you to the Bible. And you know, how do you deal with someone that's questioning her writings? Um, you, know, you have to look at the individual situation. Um, I know there are currents within our church that question her writings and um, 
All I can say is, you know, I've read Steps to Christ, I've read Desire of Ages, I've read... When I was in North Dakota, pastoring four churches way out in the German prairies out there, uh, one winter when I had a lot of time, I picked up the Great Controversy and I read the chapter called The Scriptures, Our Only Safeguard. And I decided I was going to... I was a fairly new Christian and I decided that I was going to look up every text that she quoted and make sure that she was quoting it right. And I looked up every reference in that chapter to the Bible. And I looked up all the texts. And when I was done, I thought, she's quoting it right. What she's saying the Bible says is really what the Bible says. And it just impressed me deeply. And so I'm a believer in those books as a gift that God gave her to point us to Scripture. And the Scripture is my final authority. Okay, here's a question more in the area of the character of God issues. The question is, how do you address the argument that God is not above his own law, that he wouldn't ask you to keep a commandment that he himself does not keep, for example, thou shalt not kill? Right, yeah, we deal with that in the book, The Character of God Controversy. If the law is a transcript of God's character, and the sixth commandment says do not kill, then how can then people use that as an argument that God doesn't kill? because his law is a reflection of his character. But that's, yeah. Um, when, when the commandment says don't kill, it is talking about, about murder. It's not talking about the implementation of, of justice. Uh, Romans chapter 13 is very powerful about this issue because Romans 13, maybe we just take a quick look at this. We deal with this also in the book. And, you know, if, if the commandment, don't kill, means that God can't execute justice, then when God told the Israelites to go into, the, into Canaan and execute his justice against the people that were cutting out people's hearts and sacrificing and doing all kinds of horrible things, then, then you have God telling them to break his law, telling the Israelites to break his law, which can't be. It can't be that way. Romans 13 is a very, very significant chapter in the light of this whole issue of whether God does punish sin directly and whether it's okay for him to do that. Romans 13 is talking about, the, verse 1 talks about the higher powers, referring to the gov governmental powers. Um, verse 3 says, Rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Wilt thou not be afraid of the power? Then do what is good, and you will have praise of the same. For he, referring to the ruler, is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do what is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now this brings out a number of things. These are civil authorities that have authority from God to execute judgment upon evil. And if civil authorities today did not have that authority, or if they didn't do that, society would be a lot worse than it is right now. And so civil government has a legitimate sphere of implementing justice against evildoers. If someone commits a crime and commits murder, civil government has a right to lock him up. Um, and, and this verse tells us that Civil authorities who do this, as it says, who um, actually execute wrath upon him that doeth evil, that they are doing this because they are, they are reflecting God in doing it. 
They are ministers of God in the implementation of justice in society. And it also tells us that the implementation of the justice of God in society is not always passive, where he just withdraws and allows natural consequence to take place. These, this is an active act of justice and the part of civil rulers against evil. And it's a reflection of God because they're ministers of God, and the Bible says that they do it, and they have a right to do it in his sight. And so um, when the commandment says don't kill, it's not talking about implementing justice against individuals. It's talking about murder, which is what God says don't do. Okay, next question. This person says, <clears throat> I read someplace in the fifth volume of the Testimonies that, quote, God does not destroy, end of quote, and that he lets nature take its course slash consequences. How do we explain this to others since elsewhere inspiration obviously says that he does destroy? Right. The way I understand the statement that says God destroys no man, every man that is destroyed will have destroyed himself, is ultimately saying that people are responsible for what happens to them. Uh, God is not the one that makes the choice for people to do wrong, but it's the individuals. We, if, if I'm lost, if I'm destroyed, it's my own fault. Uh, I've made the decisions and gone that direction. But it doesn't mean that God himself can never act in judgment, because it's very clear in the Bible that he does that. He, sometimes he does let, like I said, natural consequences. There are, I mean, it's obvious that he does that, and the Bible does teach that he does it. But there's also times when he acts directly. And in the book, The Character of God Controversy, there's many statements or scriptures where you just, to me, you can't get around them, such as um, in Acts chapter 12, I believe it is, or 13, one of those, where it talks about Peter, how Peter was, uh, Herod had arrested him, and he's in prison, and Herod is get ready, getting ready to execute him. And then an angel comes into Peter's cell, and his cell lights up, and it says in the Bible, let me just read that. I mean, let me get that. This is pretty significant. I think it's Acts chapter 12. It's a very significant section. Uh, in Acts, yes, it is Acts chapter 12. Peter's in prison, and in verse 7, Acts 12, 7 says, Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter, the angel smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off of his hands. And this was obviously an angel of God, right? This was God's angel, and he struck Peter and said, Get up. And then they went out, and he escaped. Well, when Herod found out what had happened, he slew the guards. He was just uh, merciless. It wasn't the guards' fault <laughs> that the angel set, them for, set Peter free, and then he just killed all the guards. And then... Sometime right after that, he's giving a speech. He goes to Caesarea, and he gives a big speech on, in verse 21. It says, upon a set day, Herod was in his royal apparel, and he's sitting upon the throne, and he's giving a speech. Verse 22 said, the people shouted, it's the voice of a god, not a man. They're praising him. This is God talking, but Herod was as far away from being like God as anybody. And then... In verse 23, it says, immediately, the angel of the Lord did what? He smote him. The angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and he gave up the ghost, and he died. Now, in verse uh, 7, it says, the angel of the Lord smote Peter. And in verse 23, it says, the angel of the Lord smote Herod. Now, when you read this in the book Acts of the Apostles, describing this 
it's, she says, Ellen White says, that it was the same angel, same angel. But then she said it was a different stroke. <laughs> You've heard the express, expression, uh, different strokes for different folks. Some people think, some people say that, that God's essential character, he just cannot do that. He will not execute judgment directly because it's just not the way he is. I don't believe that. I think that's part of the controversy. In fact, if you um, read Patriarchs and Prophets, I believe it's page 95, one of the arguments of the people before the flood, when Noah was building the ark, the philosophers and the wise men were saying, there, can, there can't be a flood. It can't happen. And, then, and one of the reasons they gave was they said, because it is contrary to the character of God to punish sin. He, he can't do it. It's just not his character to do it. That was one of their arguments. And then the water came down and they drowned in the flood. Now some people say, well, God just doesn't do it. And then they say the way he, judgments will come, but the way he does it is by just withdrawing his hand. Maybe he let the water come down or whatever happened. And they look at God's judgments all throughout history as just him just allowing these things to happen. But they don't think it's, they think it's contrary to his character to directly do this himself. Uh, I, I don't buy that. And when you look at the angel in Acts chapter 12, it was God's angel that struck Peter and said, let's go. And it was God's angel that struck Herod, and he died. And Ellen White said it was the same angel, but it was a different stroke. And so that's very clear that there are times when God does send his angels to directly punish sin. And the issue here, the big issue is, if he does do that, is he still good in doing it? That's the issue. Can God still be a loving, good God, worthy of our worship and our loyalty, if he directly punishes evil? And my contention is, yes, he is still good, definitely. We don't have to uh, change the Bible in order to make him still be good. He is good, and his justice is good, and he does it for a reason. Okay. Thank you. This question, <clears throat> I was talking to a person, and discussion about how God destroys, and I pointed out Revelation 20, verse 9 says, God sends fire from God, from heaven, and devours the wicked. And they pointed me to Job, Job 1, that right. says a servant came and said, God sent fire from heaven and That's destroyed right. I've heard that before, right. So, what's uh, your comment? That's right. When, when the Bible talks about in, in Genesis 19 that God sent fire from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, or Revelation 20, that he sent fire and he destroyed the people at the end of the thousand years, people will say, but it's not really God that's doing it, it's the devil. Although, why would the devil bring fire down on himself at the end of the thousand years? Yeah, now, that's a dilemma. But so they, and then the way they support that is they go to Job 1 and they say that, well, Satan went up to the Lord and said, and God said, okay, Satan, he's in your hands. You do it. And then uh, it talks about in Job 1 that fire came down and, and consumed some of Job's, I guess, his servants or his certain people. And so people say, let's just take a look at that, Job 1. This is a, a, a misuse of Scripture. I remember talking to somebody about this recently, too. Job 1. We know that Satan was doing it. All right, verse 
16 says the fire of God has fallen from heaven. Now, so they, they say, look, the Bible says it was the fire of God, but it really wasn't the fire of God. It was really the fire of Satan. And so then they'll say that every time the Bible talks about the fire of God, it really isn't the fire of God. It's really the fire of Satan. And they use Job 1 as their proof text to support that. But the fact is that when you look at this, the Bible doesn't really say it was the fire of God. It says that, while, verse 16 says, while he was yet speaking, there came another also, and he said, the fire of God has fallen from heaven. The people that saw that fire, they said, they thought it was God's fire, but it really wasn't. It was just what they saw. It's not that the Bible says it was the fire of God from heaven. It's what the people saw. And they didn't know. They didn't know what's going on behind the scenes. They didn't know about the dialogue between Satan and the Lord in heaven. So to use this verse as an interpretive, uh, you know, a hermeneutic or, or a way of understanding every verse in the Bible where, like in Genesis, it says the Lord rained fire from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to say it wasn't really the Lord, it was really the devil, you know, based on this verse, is not sound Bible study. Okay, next question. Based on the logic that God used the Levites to execute his wrath, can he or will he execute his wrath through people in the present day or in the future? Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that he, he has the right to do that if he chooses to do it. He did it at the golden calf. And, and like Ellen White says, in her comments on that, um, men should beware about how they judge and condemn their fellow men. But when God himself issues a command, he is to be obeyed. Now, I certainly don't believe, and I've never taught, or I'm not looking forward to the time and expecting the time when God is going to use us to go out and impl implement some kind of action against uh, the world. I don't think he's going to do that. But I, you know... He, he certainly has the right to do it if he wants to because he's God and he did it at the golden calf but I don't think that that's going to happen. That was an emergency situation dealing with the people of God with Israel as his chosen people there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And when, when his presence was right there on the mountain invisibly in front of them, it was a, a unique situation. And I don't think that, you know, we're, we're not looking forward, expecting something like that to happen today. Okay. People can hear voices and think those kind of things and, you know, we can get into, people can get into a lot of trouble. Were, were the Levites the civil authority at that time? Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe they were. Maybe they were. But we do know that God did bless them for what they did. And it was a direct act. There's a few times in the Bible where there's just direct act direct acts that to me you can't get around it another one is um, uh, was it uh, Hophni and Phineas when they were inside the temple and it says the fire of God came out from within the temple and consumed them now I don't think the devil was inside God's temple <laughs> doing that it was, it was God there are times when God does it and again the issue is is he good in doing it can we trust him that behind that hand is a heart that is motivated by love. That's the issue. Can we trust God to do, to do what, let him be God and believe that he's good in doing it? Okay. 
Do Romans 8, 4 and Revelation 14, 1 indicate that the saints will have attained a state of sinlessness before Jesus returns? If we stick to biblical definitions, First uh, John 3, 4 says sin is breaking God's law, and Romans 8, 4 and Revelation 14, 12 describe God having a people who keep his commandments. And so if we define sin biblically as breaking God's law, and then we see the scripture describe people who are keeping God's law, then I would just stick with that. And I would say that's what the scripture says. And, and uh, I believe in that. But I would also say that the only way they're going to keep God's law is by having faith in Christ. The more faith you have inside of you, the more you're going to break God's law. And the more you focus on yourself. The more you focus outside of yourself and look at Jesus, the more power you're going to have to keep God's commandments. The focus has got to be right or we're dead in the water. It doesn't work. Okay. We heard your talk at the Pentagon and we're blessed. Can you tell us how that door opened to you and what kind of response you got there? Yeah, okay, my talk in the Pentagon. We, I, think it's, I think it's on our website where people can listen to that talk. I received an email uh, a couple summers ago from a man who is one of the chaplains in the Pentagon. And he emailed me and he asked me if I'd be willing to come to the Pentagon and give a Bible study on prophecy to a group of uh, military leaders. And again, that was one of those things like the call from the History Channel where you don't really have to pray too much about that. I saw it as a big open door, and so the two of us began a dialogue, and um, the chaplain, because of church-state issues, had to be very careful, and so he brought in a number of speakers to talk about different topics concerning prophecy. He had a symposium on prophecy. He had Joel Rosenberg come in, who's a well-known evangelical a novelist, and then he had me, and he said, it's up to you, whatever you want to talk about, talk about prophecy. And so I thought, well, I've got one, and I did pray about my subject, and I had one chance and I decided to talk about the United States in Bible prophecy. So I, uh, I prepared an outline, and we went to uh, Washington, D.C., and as I was, took the metro going up the escalator into the Pentagon building, which has 25,000 people in it, there was a woman that was right on the escalator with me, and she looked at me and she said, are you Steve Wahlberg? And I said, yes, and she said, I came here to hear you speak. I saw the note on your website that you're gonna be speaking in the Pentagon. And she didn't realize that you just don't go into the Pentagon <laughs> to hear me speak. That's a high security place. And, but because she was with me, she got right in. <laughs> and so the chaplain, they have, surprisingly, there's a lot of Bible studying going on in Washington, D.C. And in the Pentagon, they have a Wednesday morning prayer breakfast every Wednesday. And different speakers address however many choose to come. And there was about 100 people that were there. Now, there's 25,000 people in the Pentagon, so some people think I addressed Congress. I did not address Congress. I spoke to this crowd, and it was quite an esteemed-looking crowd, and some of the men had quite a few you know, bars on their uh, uniforms. And so I went down. I used PowerPoint on the, on the computer, on the screen, and I went down through Revelation 13, point by point by point by point, talking about the second beast and build my case that the second beast is none other than the United States of America, and that we are heading toward a crisis when this lamb-like nation will speak as a dragon and use force. And I tell you, they were, their eyes were wide open, and they just looked right at me, 
And when I was done, they lined up wanting me to sign copies of my book that we gave them for free. So the response was very good. And I told them, I said, now feel free to share this with the president if you'd like. <laughs> and I gave them an outline. And we gave them a CD and books and all kinds of material. And they took it. And they were, the response was very good. And the uh, Pentagon chaplain then sent an email to Barry Black in the Senate and said, Steve Wahlberg's going to be coming in and speaking to the Pentagon. Why don't you have him come to your Senate uh, Friday noon Bible study? So he said, sure. So I went there on Friday, and I spoke to a group of about 150 uh, Senate staff people, and I shared my testimony and then talked about the second coming. And it was really, really positive, both of those. A lot of people were praying for me. And then we recorded the Pentagon talk, and it's on whitehorsemedia.com. Somewhere you can find that, and you can click and you can listen to the, the audio. And it was just a thrilling opportunity to teach right from the Bible uh, what it says in Revelation 13. Okay. In Revelation 19, it talks about how the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet are described symbolically. What makes the fire real? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the Bible does bounce back and forth between literal and symbolic, for sure. Um, Revelation 20 describes the fire falling upon a, an army of people that are surrounding the new Jerusalem at the end of the thousand years, which is really that verse doesn't have any symbolism in it. The verse that describes the fire is a straight narrative. And you compare that with other verses like 2 Peter 3 where it talks about uh, the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night and the heavens uh, being, you know, they, they melt with a great noise. And there's other verses that describe real fire. Sodom and Gomorrah was certainly destroyed by real fire. Uh, they were burned to ashes, the Bible says. Malachi 4 describes the day of the Lord coming, burning as an oven. And all the proud and all who do wickedly will be stubble and they'll be ashes. So you put all the verses together, it seems pretty clear to me that there is a real fire. Now, what is the actual nature of the punishment that people experience at the end of the thousand years? It's hard to say. But the Bible does clearly say that the fire comes from God. And there's other verses where it clearly says that God is the one that executes the final judgment. He says, uh, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And it also says in the Bible that he will render to every man according to his works. A lot of people, some people think that, uh, that sin is what implements God's justice at the end of time. That God just allows sin to run its course or do whatever it does. But if you really think about it, uh, at the very end of time, when there's a judgment, a great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, and the whole world of the, lo the lost world is standing before God, and then they receive their punishment, sin is not just or smart enough or capable enough, capable enough to implement God's justice fairly at the end of time. Sin could never, God would never trust sin to do it. Only he can do it. He's the only one that can do it justly and fairly. And again, the issue is, if he does do it, is he just in doing it? And I believe he is. Yeah, his strange act. That's right. It's not, it is strange to the Lord, but he will still do it. And only he can do it. Satan can't do it. Sin can't do it. You can't rely on anything. And another thing, if you consider it, the uh, influence is uh, taken into consideration in, in the final judgment. In the, you read the book, The Great Controversy, the chapter on facing life's record. Um, one of the things that people are accountable for is their influence. 
And influence goes a long way beyond you. And you can write a book. I've written books. We have TV programs. Our influence is going on all over. And when I die, the influence will continue. And so how do you reckon that in the day of judgment? And people that are pornography promoters and producers of these movies and videos, etc., uh, how do you calculate their influence? The, the publishers of Playboy and Hustler, how do you calculate their influence? Only God can calculate their influence, and they are responsible for that influence. And so when you, when you factor in influence, it's more than just natural consequences. Natural consequences inside of a person don't take into account the, the influence of what they've done throughout their lives. And only God can factor all of that in uh, justly and fairly at the end of the millennium. Yes? At, <clears throat> at what point does probation close? When probation closes. <laughs> That's the point. Um, it closes when Jesus says in Revelation 22:11, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him, let him be holy still. That will come after the mark of the beast is enforced, after the world has had a chance through the light of God's righteousness and his Holy Spirit to make an intelligent decision one way or the other. Once everyone's made their choice, then Jesus will throw down the scepter, in other words, and the door will close. Up there, no one will know it down here when it happens, but it will happen up there, and he'll do it. And then the plagues will start falling, and so we'll know eventually when the plagues are falling and people are getting the plagues, but we're not. Hopefully we're not getting them. <laughs> then we'll know. <laughs> That's right. We'll know at that point. But, but the exact moment when it closes, I don't think, uh, unless God reveals it, I don't think we'll know it. Okay, next question. Um, you've written a book about Harry Potter. In a nutshell, can you describe what are some of the greatest dangers of Harry Potter and what should we as sure, Seventh-day Adventists do? We have a number do? of books. The, this little one, uh, Perils of Harry Potter and Witchcraft. What this book does, and my larger books, they, they talk about two tracks. One is the entertainment track. Mo movies, novels, Harry Potter's on the fiction side, and there's other movies and TV shows like Charmed and Sabrina. I mean, it goes on and on and on. The amount of occultism that is in Hollywood programming is staggering. Uh, but then what it does is it looks at the parallel track of the growth of real Wicca among young people. Uh, witchcraft is definitely on the move. It's a real movement, Wicca, uh, and, and other forms of occultism. Now they're getting into vampires, and I mean, it just gets darker and darker and darker. And what, what my book does is it builds a case that as uh, entertainment is focusing on, on occultism, and Harry Potter is one of the biggest where he's casting spells and going to school to learn about developing his occult powers, when you look at the entertainment track and then you look at the parallel track of the growth of real witchcraft among young people, uh, I build a case, and I think it's a valid case to this day, I still believe it, that the entertainment track is contributing to the reality track that as people are becoming more and more familiar with the idea of casting spells and having magical powers, that that is contributing to the interest in the real thing that we're seeing all around us. And I think you can build a strong case that even though it's fiction, it still contributes to interest 
among a lot of people. Not everybody. I don't contend that every boy or girl that reads a Harry Potter book is going to want to go out and join a coven. But the reality is there's a lot of young people that are doing just that. I have a friend of mine whose daughter works at a Barnes & Noble, or used to, in Nashville. And she said that when the Harry Potter books would come out, that she would stand right there at the cash reg register and the young people would line up, young and old, and many of them, not all, but many of them would have a Harry Potter book in one hand and a Wicca book in the other hand. They were buying both books. I was on a radio show and a lot of radio interviews uh, called, the show was called Live from Seattle in uh, Seattle. And it was a live call-in show and they had, the host had me on for almost an hour and a half because the phone lines just lit up. And we were discussing Harry Potter and pros and cons and all kinds of opinions were flying. And one uh, woman called in and she said her name was Melissa. And I still remember her phone call. She said, here's my story. My daughter, I'm a mother, my daughter is 14. My daughter went out and read the first Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And then she went back to the bookstore and, bega and began buying books on witchcraft. So this girl went from Harry Potter right to witchcraft. And then she talked about the struggles that she had in her family. And finally, the girl gave up those books and re, you know, gave, gave her life, because uh, was, this, was, this was a Christian family. And that's just one example of many that you know, young people who read these books can become interested. They're planting seeds, seeds of magic in people's hearts. And magic is very accessible these days through the internet and books, etc. And I just think that it's dangerous to expose yourself to these things, I really do. Okay, next question. Final question here. Can you give us an update about your ministry and where you're headed and some of the perhaps exciting new projects that you're working on? And also perhaps how things got started, how you've moved forward in faith, and how God's been blessing. Yeah, well, that's a long story. Uh, I, I, the Lord has led me to where I am today. It's been a 30-year journey, starting with becoming a Christian and writing a little track and, with my hand and handing it to somebody to now where I am today with a ministry that has a TV. Uh, we have our own television equipment. Somebody gave us a big donation. We bought $100,000 worth of TV equipment. We've been producing programs for a couple of years um, in our, as part of Whitehorse Media. We've recently moved up to Washington just to get into a lower cost environment and to get our families uh, more into the country. Uh, we have. Um, We've produced TV programs on a lot of subjects. If you go onto our website, whitehorsemedia.com, you can actually watch our programs right, on, right on, online. Uh, one of the exciting things that happened was uh, a number of months ago, we got an email from the secretary to the president of the Trinity Broadcasting Network in Russia. And this woman had gone onto our website, found our website, and was watching our programs right online, our TV programs. And she was so moved by what she saw that she contacted our producer and said, I want, we want to air your Steve Wahlberg's programs on TBN Russia into 140 million homes for free. And so uh, we were just uh, amazed by this. And when I went to Norway last summer, I was speaking at a camp meeting and I told the crowd that it's going to cost us about $10,000 to do the translation of the English programs into Russian to put them on, on TV. They would air it for free, but it still cost to do the translation. And so um, when, when that talk was over, a man walked up to me right out of the crowd, and at, when the meeting was over, and he said, I've got $10,000 I want to pay for those translations. So 
uh, we're, we're getting emails. We just got one a couple days ago from somebody in Italy and someone in uh, Russia that had they're writing the Trinity Broadcast Network and they're saying, wow, we really like these programs. And so now they're, they're sending the emails to us, letting us know that, yes, the translations are airing, they're doing it. And so that's, that's very exciting. The History Channel, I mentioned that before, that's a real exciting thing. We're just waiting any day now for the official date when that will air. Uh, our series on 3ABN, Islam Revisited, 13-part TV series, that's a, a real unique thrust of ours to try to reach the Muslim community. And then the Ultimate Passover, which is designed to reach Jews. So, um, and I, I keep writing and I'm just doing the best I can while the Lord keeps me alive to keep on going. We're a small ministry, but we're having a big reach. Our website has a new webmaster and it's just about ready to the point where we can put a lot more things on it and keep in touch with people regularly with new information right on the home page. We're almost there. So that's really exciting for us. Sure, yeah, the great controversy. The same destructive power exercised by holy angels when God commands will be exercised by evil angels when he permits. So that shows sometimes he permits, sometimes he commands. He, he commands. And uh, sometimes evil angels do it, sometimes holy angels do it. So that's what great controversy, page 614. Right, thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much, Pastor Wahlberg. I think that's, that's the, all the questions we have. Do you want to have like a closing prayer then to wrap sure. things up? Okay, yes. Uh, why don't we kneel together? Let's kneel and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, thank you so much for... For this gathering today, thank you for bringing me here to Loma Linda. I've been really blessed being here. And we just pray that you will help us to turn our eyes away from man and to look, look to Jesus. Jesus, you are you're everything. You love us in spite of our, our failures. And we just pray that you will continue to, your work in our lives, that you will come in more and more and fill us with your love and your presence and help us to reflect your character of love and compassion to a lost world. Please bless this group and bless us. We just thank you for what has happened today, what you've done here. In Jesus' name, amen.